The, the title of the sermon today is, Above All, Pursue Unity. And I say above all because we've heard a lot of biblical commands and principles the last two weeks regarding how to relate to one another. Paul gives it one more shot in Romans 15, chapters, chapter 15, verses 1 to 13, by drawing us to the reality of unity why we have it as a church, but above all, pursuing it and what that looks like to do so. Back when I was in seminary, I can remember a certain season in seminary. I was often sleep deprived and often with my head in a book, so I don't remember one season from another. But I can remember this season where we talked about church history and the constant battle of whether the church is pure or unified. And often the words that the churches rally around at certain seasons in history are purity and unity. Now, honestly, we need both, right? We need to be a church that is pure and we need to be a church that is unified. And what we talked about was that oftentimes we tend to kind of swing from one to the other, or we take up the cause of one or the other. Now, for example, if you are for purity in the church, you are going to be particularly um, passionate to defend the doctrines of salvation, of Christ, of what it means to be a church together. And basically, those are the things that we've talked about that are of first importance. If we don't have those things, then we're not a pure church. And people are, are so quick today to give up those things in order to pursue the other side, unity. If you're about unity, then often if you swing to that side of the pendulum, you are mostly concerned about love. And we need love in the church, but to the exclusion of certain doctrines that make us a church to begin with. And a lot of churches historically, and even today, have fallen to that side, and they have exclusively focused on that. The problem is, if you focus exclusively on purity and don't care about unity so much, just wanting to be right, then even the freedoms that we have in Christ are subject to the right opinion. And if you don't get it right, then you are not considered pure. The danger of the unity side is that even doctrines are subject to irrelevance if it doesn't contribute overall to the love and the unity that we have as a church together. Now, what's interesting is as you study this throughout church history, you, you come up against some really unique individuals who have exemplified both. One such guy is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a British pastor in the 1900s. He's formerly a medical doctor who then studied and became a pastor of one of the largest churches in England. Many people came, like hundreds and hundreds of people would come to listen to him on a Sunday morning, and he would just deliver what we might consider to be kind of a dry approach, but it was a systematic unveiling of the Word of God. And even though it was dry at times, people were invigorated and captivated by what this man was teaching. And if anything, you would go there and you would say, this is a church that is pure. And looking around at the variety of people, we'd say it's unified. 
But even a guy like Martin Lloyd-Jones, as well-versed as he is in the purity and the unity of the church, can still come across as a guy who is rather weak when it comes to personal opinions. In their book, The Conscience, What It Is, How We Differ, and How to Love Those Who Differ, Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley write one thing about Martin Lloyd-Jones that stood out to me when I was reading their book again recently. Here is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about certain trends that were happening in his day. His words, quote, I cannot possibly understand a man who wears silk stockings or even gaudily colored socks, rings, wristwatches, spats, shoes instead of boots, or who carries a cane in his hand. The modern method of installing a bath in each house is not only a tragedy, but it has been a real curse to humanity. If I had to spend a lifetime with a companion who had one bath a day, or with one who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter, because a man's soul is more important than his skin. When I enter a house and find that they have a wireless apparatus, which means a radio, I know at once that there is something wrong. Your five-valve sets may do wonders. They may enable you to hear the voice of America, but believe me, they will never transmit the only voice that is worth listening to. Now, maybe you've heard some preaching like that or some preachers that get up on a, a, a kind of a soapbox and they begin to talk about things. And what, what is unclear at times is when people begin to equate their personal opinions to the level of the doctrines that bind us together in the purity of the church. When those things seem to come together in the, in the, the ears of those who hear regular preaching and the, the strong opinions of those within the church, it can become difficult for us to distinguish those things. But we are called to go back to God's word and particularly in this passage, the Apostle Paul lays out a very clear call to unity. And it's not a unity at all costs because there are times when we must divide, when people do not have a firm belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that we don't have that core unity that displays that purity. But in other ways, on things that are not explicitly either condemned by God and if we don't have a command from God to do things a certain way about this thing, then we do not need to land so hard on those things so as to cause disunity in the church or a disagreement emerge among brothers or sisters in Christ that leads to a division in the church at large. Instead, we are too, above all, in essential things pursue purity, but in non-essential things pursue unity. The glory of God is at stake, and the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus, who he is and what he has done, is at stake. And what we find in this text this morning is really this principle, this theme, that, that we see Jesus, by example, laying down his rights so that he could bring people together. And we then certainly can now and must lay down our freedoms in order to bring people together for the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to God. Above all, 
pursue unity. Now, just in case you might think I am off on this theme of unity, look first at verse 6 to see the priority of unity, the priority of unity. That verse says that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this section of Romans 14 and 15, what Paul's been trying to get to over and over again is that we have things that unite us that are far greater than the little things that tend to divide us. But ultimately, the reason that we're coming together at all, the reason that all of us from these different walks of life now have the opportunity to meet like this on a Sunday morning is to celebrate the greatest things that have happened to us. The greatest things are that we now belong to God the Father. We now have been reconciled to him by Jesus. And we raise our voices in praise. And we glorify God. How do we glorify God? By presenting our lives to him again, as those who have been brought back to him from death to life. And we celebrate that, and that's what God wants us to major on. He wants us to make that a priority. He wants us to lay down certain things that we might feel are our freedoms, and certainly they are, but he calls on us to prioritize unity. God's desire is a unified family, a unity based on a shared commitment to Jesus Christ, his son, a unity based on the truth of the gospel, and a unity that is not interrupted by the different opinions we have on non-essentials. We could say it this way, on essentials, purity, on non-essentials, unity. We want to make sure that we have the right perspective as we go forward together. And I would just ask, is this your goal in the church? Is it your goal to pursue unity in the church? Or do you treasure unity more than proving your opinions are right or best? We're going to learn from this text that we sometimes are very bothered by those who do not see things the way that we do. Whether we are weak in the faith and we look at others who are doing things that we think are ungodly, when those things really are not godly or ungodly, but a matter of non-essential and, and yet, when the strong do those things and the weak give them an evil eye, they become really bothered and they look down on those people. And we've been learning from the text that these are things, these are, these are reactions instead of purposeful, intentional thought that we give toward one another in the church. And we need to go into the second point, into the principles that guide unity. These are in verses 1 and 2. Here's what the verses say. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. As I mentioned at the beginning, for the past two Sundays, Pastor Sam, along with Jake the first week and James Lynch the second week, have been teaching us about how we differ 
as Christians from one another on these matters of non-essentials and how to love them. By way of review, let's kind of define again what strong and weak are as we encounter it here in this text and how it is spoken of in Romans 14. Strong refers to those people who have the freedom of conscience to enjoy things that God allows or that he has not forbidden. A weak person refers to those who do not enjoy that freedom of conscience, but instead feel bound to follow what they believe are rules about that, that maybe are Old Testament rules that no longer apply, that maybe their own family or background forming their consciences so that they feel compelled to restrict themselves on a certain number of things that someone who is strong may not feel restricted to do. At times it can be confusing, and I think that's why Paul has spent the last chapter and a half and even goes into this matter again when he addresses it to the Corinthians. I don't think all of these things are going to be cleared up by a series of three sermons on this. You can go back even to a series Pastor Sam and I did a number of years ago during the pandemic on the conscience. Those things are still available if you look it up. I don't even know that all of that will clear up all the questions that you have. I do know that having done that series and listened to these sermons and preparing this one, I know for sure that I don't want to be a weak Christian. I would rather be strong. But I heard what Jake said a few weeks ago, that these are not categories that refer to your status as a Christian. Jesus does not make these issues a matter of, okay, the strong are the preferred Christians and the weak are those that we just put up with. Now, actually, in verse 1, when it says, we who are strong, Paul identifying himself with the strong, says we have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That does not mean what we think of typically as bear with. You know, it's just like constantly dealing with an annoying person that keeps coming to you and coming to you, and you just kind of put up with them. Now, that's not what this text is saying. Actually, the command that we owe to anyone who is weaker in the faith is to come alongside them and to bear their burdens with them. It's kind of like you see someone who has a heavy load, and you don't just watch them carry it. You go and you help them carry it. That's the owing that we owe to those who are weaker in the faith, those that we may tend to be bothered by, those who we feel should be farther along than they are, Christ commands us to bear their load with them. Now, the things that he tells us to do, we who are strong, and even includes the weak, are basic things that you would look at and say, yeah, I agree with that. I think that's true. I heard one preacher say that we often want a silver bullet that would just fix all these problems that we tend to have whether it be in our marriages. I could, I could admit that at times, I think my wife has always been the stronger believer. At times, I've been the weaker believer, and I've kind of caught up with her in terms of what the Lord has freed me to understand and experience. Maybe that's the case for you and your marriage. In, in your families, parents and children, or husband and wife and their parents, and trying to work things out and the way standards work, we wish there was a silver bullet that would just fix those things. But you know what? 
is true, it's always the simple things that work. And we may feel like it should be a little bit more nuanced and able to fix things quicker, but the counsel from God's word and the principles that guide unity are these. We should not please ourselves, and we should please our neighbor to build him up. So boiling it down, don't please yourself, but please your neighbor to build him up. Now, my hope is that we can unpack these a little bit. So let's do that first with the first issue that Paul addresses. And that is in verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So let's look at that. Don't please yourself. I think one of the ways that we deal with someone who is weaker in the faith is by stopping the automatic reactions that come out of us. You know, when, when you and I face critics in the church that don't appreciate our freedom on a certain point, we might say or be tempted to say, forget them. I'm going to do it anyway. And you'd have the freedom to do it if you chose to. But the way of Christ, as we'll see in a moment, is to put yourself aside even to serve that person and get to the back of the line so that you can be with them and not prioritize what you need in that moment, but instead to forget yourself. See, in the Bible, we're not to, you know, talk down about ourselves. We're not to discourage ourselves. We're really to put ourselves to the side, trusting that Christ is taking care of us and that he has been so good to us, which frees us up not to have to be first and to keep promoting ourselves. Instead, we can get to the back of the line, and we can minister to the people that God is putting in front of us. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Sam used the example of those military ships that were going in a fleet across the Atlantic, and they couldn't go any faster than the smallest, slowest ship. Right? They were slowed down by the slowest ship, and they kept pace with that slowest ship in order to stay together. But they got to where they were supposed to go. You know, The church is supposed to operate in a certain way like that, where we're not encouraging us to use our freedoms in order to kind of push people over or to mow them down. Example, when one of my daughters is scared at nighttime, I know that what they're scared of really is nothing to worry about. Um, but I've learned over time that it doesn't help to say, everything's fine. You're scared about nothing, and you really just need to go to sleep. I've said things like that. All that does is exasperate them. There are commands in the Bible, commands, don't exasperate your children, right? So I've learned, don't do that. I don't get it right every time. My problem in that moment is not overcoming a fear, because I don't have that fear. My problem in that moment is myself. I'm more concerned about my agenda and my night times with an hour or maybe two where I have left to get some things done or even just to enjoy some downtime. And my flesh doesn't like to be interrupted. Now, here's what I've done that seems to work. 
And I confess that this is something that the Lord does on my heart and helps me to relate to them. What helps is if I get down on their level and sometimes give them a hug or just let them hold on to me for a little while. They begin to calm down and then I pray with them. That route works so much better. You know, I may have in that moment lost a bit of time to do what I preferred to do, but I've gained the trust of a daughter at that moment, which is far better. Now, are you willing to ask not, what's my preference or desire here, but how can I best serve the desire of the one in front of me? How can I put their needs above my own? How can I get down on their level and truly know them? All right, well, the second principle is this. Please your neighbor by his, for his good by building him up. When you've put yourself and your freedoms to the side for a moment, you are able to spend some time thinking about ways to please the one who is perhaps judging you. At this point, the weaker brother might say, yes, that's what I've been trying to do. Right? If you just stop doing what you're doing and do what I do, then you'll be pleasing to God. And the answer is not to stop enjoying freedoms to validate the weak conscience of a weaker brother. That's not the end game. Right? There are a couple of errors here that I want to address. The first one is this. Pleasing your neighbor is not the same as pleasing people. Right? People pleasing in the Bible is known as the fear of man. And that's a trap, the Bible says, that we get into at times. Certain people can be very strong in their opinions, on the strong side and the weak side. They can vocally say what their opinions are on matters of non-essentials. And if we're not careful, we can, instead of pleasing our neighbor to build him or her up, we can fall into the trap of pleasing them just to shut them up just to stop them from doing or saying what they're saying. Now, let me share a story quickly from my previous experience of being pastor at Beijing Baptist Church. It was a church that started in a very fundamentalist mold. Right? Standards were very high, and they were really non-essential things that had been elevated to the status of importance. Um, you know, if you would have come in those days, having been here at West Park, you would have quickly written the church off saying, Ugh, this place is really not what I'm thinking of in terms of a healthy church. But I think you would have been a little bit too quick to do that when behind the scenes, we were working together as pastor and people in the church to de-emphasize some of those things. Um, it was a church where the value had been placed on the King James Version of the Bible, that it was the only version that we would preach from. Uh, men would wear suits and ties and women dresses, and the music was traditional hymns played from a hymn book on piano only. And so I began to de-emphasize those emphases, not because I saw no value in a church like that. In certain settings, it could still minister the truth if they stuck true to the gospel. But I saw that in our setting, where there were many people from around the world, um, people from poor backgrounds and some from wealthier backgrounds, some with higher degrees, some with no degrees, 
to elevate some of those things would be really to marginalize some of the people because either they wouldn't understand what was happening or because they would look at things and just conclude, I don't fit here or I'm not welcome here. So after about a year, year, um, I had already not been preaching with a tie on. That was liberating. I had led the church to change the Bible translation we used to the ESV, and that went okay too. I'd even introduced a handful of Chris Tomlin or Sovereign Grace music songs. If you don't know what those are, just go back about a decade or two. And there was one member in particular who didn't like that and let me know I wasn't being faithful to the Lord by introducing those songs. One week we played Wonderful Cross by Chris Tomlin. It's where they take When I Survey the Wondrous Cross and add a a chorus. Um, This person told me that in the same row as them, I'm trying to save the, the identity of the person by not using gendered pronouns here, right? When this person came to me afterwards, they said, you know, when we were singing that song, there was a man in my row who was going like this, and that was wrong. I mean, this person let me know that the songs that we were selecting were leading people to have too much of an emphasis on the beat of the songs. And I just thought, I I get that, because I think I've come from that world, but I don't think I agree. But you know what bothered me? And the ditch that I fell into was the fear of man. People pleasing, not pleasing my neighbor to build him up. Uh, One of those days I went in and there was a guest to our city and he wanted to play on a guitar and we were going to sing together. And so we did, but you could talk to my wife, and I don't really like to share this, but I was a anxious, wreck, touchy, grouchy, angry on the way to church because I knew that that person would be there with their critical eye looking at me, and I'd probably get an earful afterward. I almost scrapped it, but at the same time, it was a song that I loved, and I knew that the people would benefit from it, and the minority would just have to put up with it. And so we did it, and at the end, I realized that I was still a person whose conscience was being formed and challenged, and who, in the process of growing from a weaker to a stronger, I benefited from a lot of people around me who had different standards than I did, but who were godly people, who had come from backgrounds completely different from mine, But the more we got together, the more I see that they loved the Lord Jesus. And they made space for him. And they opened up their lives to me. And we could spend time together. Again, a great influence on me was my wife when we were dating and then married. We, We began in that church to grow through those times of change. And so what do we do when it comes to these things? One of the things that we could do is just avoid the conflict But I think instead we need to jump in and to serve one another. We need to come alongside one another. One thing that John MacArthur said back in the 80s that I found this week that helped me on this issue, he said this, if we're going to gain the weak, it is by getting under their load and saying, I'll live under that load with you and we'll carry it together until you're free to drop that burden. That's the meaning of bear with, once again. Now, as a church... Are we the kind of people that weaker people in conscience look at and say, man, 
you guys love Jesus. Your lives are this blend of purity and unity that's beautiful. It's different than what I'm used to, but I'm holding on to the Jesus that you are, and if you have that attitude back to them, welcoming them, this is what the scripture commands us to do. It's refreshing when it happens, and in the third case this morning, I want to look at the power that motivates us to keep living that way, the power to live that way. The first power that we have to motivate us is the example of Jesus. Look at verse 3. It says, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus did not please himself, and if anybody in the universe had the right to please himself, it was Jesus. In heaven, he would have the right to say to his angels at any point, go there and get this for me or do this, or do that, there would never be any complaint that anyone could have that he was overstepping his bounds, or he was speaking out of turn. He has the right to do whatever he pleases, but he gave up the right to do whatever he pleases in order to come down and to minister to you and me. That's the incarnation. Jesus arrived, and he arrived with the express purpose to show us who God is. He was the most free person to ever live. When you read of Jesus in the New Testament, you don't get the impression that his conscience is bound on non-essential things. You see that he is free to minister to all types of people and in various settings, and he's happy. We often forget that Jesus was full of joy. Now, When he came, his rights were given up in order that ultimately he could bear the reproaches that God himself was receiving from people. And it says in the scripture, Psalm 69, the reproaches that were meant for you were heaped on me. I bore those reproaches. You see, Jesus is our example in one sense that when we face perhaps as strong individuals in the faith, consciences that are strong, weaker people judging us, the logic is this. Since Jesus, the only one worthy of thinking only of himself and having the freedom to do what he pleased, could give up all of his rights and identify with us to suffer for us, certainly we can occasionally do without some of our freedoms in order to live in unity with our brothers and sisters here. Right? That's the logic of this example. In verse 7, we see another thing that Jesus does as example to us. He welcomed us for the glory of God. Therefore, welcome one another, verse 7 says, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It's interesting that this section essentially ends with the same command that it began with. Romans 14, verse 1 begins with that command of God to welcome one another. And now here, it says the same thing again, welcome one another. In the middle, in verse 14, 3, we see that God welcomed us. And now in verse 15, chapter 15, verse 7, we see that Jesus welcomed us. The logic is this. Since we have been supported, encouraged, loved, and welcomed by our Savior, we should support, encourage, love, and welcome one another. How should this motivate us? Well, this is kind of like the parable of that guy who was forgiven much, 
like 10 lifetimes of debt his master forgave him. And then he went out and found a man who owed him 10 bucks, grabbed him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe. And the man couldn't pay it, and so he ended up throwing him in jail until he could pay it off. And when the master heard that, you know that he came back and said, how could you do that when I had forgiven you all that debt? And you couldn't forgive that little debt that that man owed you? Right? What we learn from this is that Christ has been infinitely patient, infinitely welcoming to you and I in our many failings. Right? Verse 1 says that we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. That really means the weaknesses of the weak. How patient has Jesus been with you in all of your weird opinions about stuff? How kind has he been to you, never abandoning you, when you just weren't certain what you thought, or when your faith was small, or when you just were not living in grace but by law? How loving and welcoming was Jesus to you? How gracious has he been to you? That motivates us to love others the same way. There is no way that I can welcome you to the degree that Jesus has welcomed me, but I can live my life reflecting on that and coming to you with that attitude where you know that I love you and where you can convey that to others as well. Ultimately, Jesus united us for the glory of God. Verses 8 to 12 deal with a series of Old Testament texts. As Jake was reading it this morning, you just heard that, and again, and again, and again. Look at them again. In verse 8 it says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come. Even he who raise, arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Jesus is described in verse 8 as a servant who magnified the truthfulness and the glory of God by bringing Jews and Gentiles together and showing them who God is. These two groups had major differences that could never be brought together, could never be overcome, except through the servant ministry of Jesus to the point of death. Philippians 2 reminds us that he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The multiplied purposes of Jesus all point back to this one overarching theme that we who did not belong to him could come and bring glory to him. How do we bring glory to him? By knowing who he is, by reflecting on it, by marveling at our God and extolling him in worship. As it is expressed here, the call goes out, even from the Old Testament, anticipating that you and I would come, that we would be here this morning, and that we would be commanded, praise his name, Gentiles, 
Praise the Lord, as we sang over and over this morning, praise the Lord. The weight of this text calls on us to praise the Lord. And the unity and the principle that we learn from this, how the logic of this example works, is that if we had Christ to overcome our greatest divisions to lead us to worship, how can we not set aside some of our differences to prioritize one another in worship, to point one another to the glory and the worship of the one true God? These non-essentials should not divide our worship. We should learn from one another. We should learn how to support one another. We should prefer one another. But these things should not divide us from our primary mission of pointing one another to the glory of God. Now, Paul gives us another source of power. The example of Christ is the first. The other source of power is the word of God. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now, this is almost an aside in the middle of his call to unity. Paul has just by this point quoted about Jesus from Psalm 69.9. And then he says this, verse 4, kind of as an explanation. He's like, hey, you guys may have noticed that I, I just talked about Jesus from Psalm 69. Here's how I can do that. The scripture is given to us for our instruction so that we through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures might have hope. All right, he says, the scriptures, they point us to Jesus. He is the master plan. He is the point of it all. And when we read in the Old Testament the stories the examples, the commands, the, the wisdom literature, all these things show us again and again our need for a savior, the type of savior who would come, what he would be like and accomplish. You can learn about Jesus from the Old Testament alone, but how much greater the privilege that we have a completed Bible that we can read that can lead us to encouragement and to endurance to continue to pursue these things to the glory of God. I learned this week about a woman named Helen Burhani, who was a gospel singer in the nation of Eritrea. 2002, Eritrea got a new government, and that government decided that evangelical Christianity was outlawed. So they gathered the pastors together and told them, either you sign this document saying that you will no longer preach the gospel, or your churches will be outlawed, and anyone preaching the gospel will be punished. Well, Helen Verhani was one of those who, as a presence of gospel ministry through her music in Eritrea, did not sign that document, and she was thrown into a shipping container prison in the middle of the desert outside of the main capital, Amzwara of Eritrea. Um, I heard her testimony the other night on a Voice of the Martyrs um, live stream, and what she shared is that she was beaten, she was starved. At one point, she was thrown into a shipping container with a, a crazed woman who night and day screamed and jumped around, attacked her. Uh, but one of the things that she said helped her was how she had internalized the word of God before she got there. The word of God encouraged her. 
And in those days, her mind sought examples that could sustain her and encourage her and help her to endure. She said that at one point she thought back to the story of Isaac following his father Abraham to the mountain to be sacrificed. And he didn't know where he was going, but he followed in his father's footsteps and trusted him. And that bolstered her, and she believed that God would continue. And so you know what she did? She shared that message with others. She created a bunch of songs to worship God and told the other prisoners there, our weapon in this war is not to fight, but to praise and to worship. So we are going to be toast in the battle if we do not have hope from the word of God. And then one last source of power is God himself, God's enabling power. Verses 5 and 6 are a prayer. I want to read that to you now. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not intent that we have uniformity because otherwise you know you wouldn't have this section of scripture saying you know people are going to differ they're going to be strong and weak and that's okay All right we're not looking for uniformity unity is having a common purpose and a common cause that we all can rally around and that's jesus himself how do we get there well the reality is that it has to be granted to us Verse 5 says that God himself is the God of endurance and encouragement. These ways of describing God, on the one hand, he is so patient with you. And he is a God of deep encouragement. But he is a God also who gives you encouragement and gives you the ability to endure. Because it says in this text, may God grant you these things. To grant you means that they are a gift. The unity that we have, as well as the purity, is not of our own doing. It is the direct result of God himself giving us this unity. Unity in these non-essentials is a precious gift from God. And the motivation that we need to have is this. First, to pray for those things. And to thank God for the precious gift that he's given us of one another here in this church. That we can belong to one another and that we don't have to create a unity that is his to grant us. But we are humbled and need to be humbled. And so the prayer needs to be, God, grant us these things for your glory and for our good. And so that the church would know even a group of people that are differing from one another on issues of non-essentials, they love one another. And they could see through all those differences that the main thing is the main thing. It's Jesus himself. So as I close today, let me just ask a couple of questions. And I would encourage you to take the REAP guide that was written today. Matthew Goldstein wrote that. It's a really good study. It's a guide to direct you through this text in your community groups or at home or over the table at lunch. Think it through. In what ways have you been living for only yourself this week? And how might you instead build up your neighbor? How can you come alongside them and support them? 
Are you making as much about Jesus as you are your opinions? Are you making as much, and I would say more, are you making more about Jesus? Or are you making more about your opinions about things over non-essentials? And I do want to ask, do you know Jesus Christ in a personal, saving relationship? Above all, we are here to help you to know him, to be purified by his blood, and to be unified with the people of God in praise of his great name. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up, and we're going to close this section with prayer. I'll come back up. I didn't forget verse 13. That will be our benediction as we close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you are teaching us to pursue. Above all, we want purity in essentials, and we want unity in these non-essentials. As someone said long ago, and in all things, love for one another. And so guide us, Lord, and help us to think where we are living for ourselves. And help us to know the freedom in which we walk so that we would instead submit our lives under the lordship and the gracious example of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.